Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat the bread, you will eat bread by the sweat of your bra until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust and you will return to dust. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks, Terry. Thanks, y'all. Well, that's a pleasant place to end on this nice, cheery Christmas season, right? You are dust. Don't forget it. <laughs> we turn here to uh, Genesis chapter 3. We're going way back, right, to the beginning of the story. So last week, if you were with us, we talked about how all creation groans for redemption. This was a passage in Romans chapter 8 we talked about last week where the Apostle Paul, this follower of Jesus, one of the, the lead followers of Jesus way early in the life of the church, he was writing to the church in Rome and he was telling him, look, all of the world, all creation itself is just groaning for redemption. We know that the earth is broken. That is an inevitable reality. You look around and, and there's no question that our very earth is broken and the earth itself longs for salvation. It longs for redemption. It longs for Jesus. And though humans can reject Jesus, the earth itself knows when its king is present. It knows when its God is here, when its creator has come. That's why Jesus could say during Palm Sunday or what we celebrate is Palm Sunday. During the day he was going into Jerusalem, he could say, look, if the people stopped praising me, even the rocks would cry out because the creation knows it's king. So that's where we were last week. But what, how did this start? Right? What's the beginning of this? How do we even know that the earth is broken? Right? How, how, where, biblically, where do we even go? How, how do we go back to the source of the brokenness that we see all around us, in our own relationships, in the world, in the ways that we've affected the world. And that's where we're going today, back to Genesis chapter 3. So let's set the stage. Now, I want to say something right up front. I am not a seven-day literal creationist. Just personally, I'm not. You may be. That's cool, right? How you read Genesis is up to you, whether you believe that God literally created the world in seven days or whether you believe that what's trying, what God is trying to communicate with to us through Genesis is his power and his supremacy and his authority and his love and care for creation and his reason for creating humanity. Whether, whether you believe in a literal seven-day creation or not is immaterial to what we're going to be talking about here. So we go back to the beginning of the story and, and here God has created the world. What we can't agree on no matter what is that God created. 
God made the world. And he made the world as an object of his love. He made the world in order to, to overflow his love and care into someone and something else. And so God makes creation, not because he needs creation, not because he needs more worshipers, not because God is somehow insufficient in and of himself. God overflows with love so much that he overflows in creativity. And he makes stuff. And he makes people to love and to care for. And not only for us to be the objects of God's love, but for us to be the conduits of God's love. So back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates the earth and all the animals, and then God creates humanity, creates people. And God gives humanity a specific mission. God says to the first two people, I want you to go and spread this garden that I've put you in, the, the Garden of Eden. I want you to spread that garden throughout the whole earth. I want you to be the conduits of my love and my authority and my power on earth. That's why God creates humanity. Not only to be objects of his love, but to be conduits throughout. He makes us what's called vice regents. God is the king, and we get to rule the earth under our God, in the same way that God would, allowing God's overflowing love to flow through us and to spread his rule and reign throughout the world. That's the mission of humanity. That's their primary role. That's what we were created to do, to be conduits of God's creativity and love for the world, to care for the earth and one another just as God does. That's why we exist. That's a high mission. That's a high calling. That's a great honor. There are a lot of people in the world who think they're worthless. They're, they think they were, they're pointless. They wonder why I was born. How could God have placed me here? How could God have allowed this thing to happen or that thing to happen? Why on earth did God even give me life? And the answer is right here at the beginning of the Bible, and it is a beautiful one. He created you to be a conduit of his affection for people and for the world. He created you to carry out his love and his mission, his creativity to all the earth. It's a high mission. It's a high calling. And we, we watch in the first couple chapters of Genesis as the man and woman are there and they're, they're working in the garden. And, and there's this undisclosed amount of time that exists between their actual creation and the time that this serpent comes along to deceive them. We don't know how long they were working in the garden. We don't know how long they were there. Maybe it was a day. Maybe it was 50 years. Maybe it was 500 years. There's some undisclosed amount of time that goes by. And eventually we read that the serpent, the most crafty of all creatures, is in the garden and wants to deceive the people, wants to deceive Adam and Eve. And so the serpent sidles up to Eve one day. Now, God had created this garden, and he said, look, you can eat from any tree in the garden, except this one, the knowledge of good and evil. Don't, don't eat from this particular tree in the garden. And so one day, they're just in the garden, Adam and Eve, hanging out. Adam isn't actually a proper name, by the way. Adam is just the Hebrew word for man or humanity. So he was a representative of all humanity. And so they're in the garden, and Eve is there, and the serpent sidles up. And the serpent says, hey, doesn't that fruit look so good? It's just, it looks so tasty. You really want a bite of that fruit, don't you? 
And what God doesn't want you to know, Eve, is that when you take a bite of that fruit, you'll become like God. Knowing all good and evil, knowing all things, when you eat of that tree, you'll become like God. Now, here's the irony of this. You've heard me say this before if you've been around. The great irony of this is that they were already like God. They were created in the image of God. The great irony of this is that by eating the fruit, they would become less like God. They were already created to be like him, to share his glory They were already created to rule over the earth just as he would. They had all the capacity that God could give them. And so the serpent sidles up to Eve and says, Eve, doesn't that fruit look good? You want a bite of that fruit? And when you eat it, you'll become like God, knowing all good and evil. And Eve falls to the temptation. Now this is not a statement on the weakness of women because Adam is right there with her. In fact, it says that right after she took a bite, she turned to her husband. Now, you can't turn to somebody who's way far away. She turned to her husband and said, hey, have some too. And like any good puppy dog, he said, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, 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 oh. And he took the fruit too. They fell together. They did the one thing God told them not to do. You know, we live a life with a lot of rules. We get a lot of do's and don'ts. We can sometimes be forgiven if in our ignorance we break some of the rules we've got because we either don't know that they're there or we haven't been well-versed in all the rules of every place we go. In this garden, there was one rule. One. They had zero excuse. They can't claim ignorance. They get to walk with God every day. Every evening, they're walking alongside God, having conversation with him. There's no way they can be like, oh, God, you didn't say that tree. You meant that tree, right? Like They can't claim ignorance here. And so the first two people there, deceived by the serpent, grasping for power, as we often do, grasping for authority that they already had, grasping to become like God, fell to temptation. And you can't break the one rule without consequences. You can't break a rule without consequences. That's the point of a rule. God doesn't want to do what he's about to do. God doesn't want to say to his people what Terry read for us, what God is about to say to them. God in no way wants to punish his people. God doesn't want these consequences for the people. If he wanted the consequences for them, he wouldn't have told them the rule. And so God goes to them after they've hidden, after they've run, because they know they've done wrong. They're not ignorant. They're not naive. Sometimes we imagine the first two people, if you imagine this story at all, you imagine these first two people as just very naive, very simple-minded people. They were more intelligent, more knowledgeable than any one of us in this room. They were more sophisticated and more honorable than any single one of us in this room when they fell to this temptation. They knew exactly what they were doing. And so they run from God, and God finally finds them. And God essentially says to them, look, you can't do that without consequences. If you're a parent here, and you've had a kid who's done that exact thing that you've told them not to do, I mean, half the time your kid does the exact thing you told them not to do while you're telling them not to do it. You know the disappointment that God feels with them right now. 
You, you totally understand the disappointment that God comes to them. Oftentimes, we come in anger to our kids. Our kids break a rule, and we come, and we, we're raging, and we're angry. And I honestly think that most of the time, it's more about how we're feeling and what's going on inside of us than it is about our relationship with a kid. Because if we were coming in true love, we would come primarily in disappointment and brokenheartedness over our children. And so God comes, and he's upset, and he's discouraged. I don't know if God can get discouraged. Maybe he's just upset. He's disappointed. He's frustrated. His kids have broken the one rule he gave them. And he comes to them head hanging. And he asks the woman in verse 13, what have you done? Listen to the tone in that. I mean, you can read that with so many tones. You can read that with the finger of accusation. You can rear that with the, with the growl of anger. But honestly, I read this and I just hear God say, what have you done? What? I can hear the tear in his eye as God looks at his kids and knows the pain that they are now going to face. Knows all of the difficulty that they are going to have to deal with. Knows all of the struggle they're going to have to have that they didn't have to have. And so God comes to them and says, My children, what have you done? And so the woman says to God, blame shifting as we do. Well, the serpent told me. The serpent told me to eat it. And you know, the serpent's wise and the serpent's beautiful and the serpent's amazing. And so I did it. And then God pronounces the consequences. So we're going to take a look at these consequences, but we're going to skip over the consequences of the serpent first. We're going to go to the consequences for the woman and the man. And he said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. These are the consequences for the woman. And so, women, if you've ever had a child naturally... Or if you've ever had to take the epidural, or you've ever had to suffer through labor, I'm sorry. Here's why. (laughs) We have two living children. We've had four pregnancies, two living children, three births. Um, So I've been present now for three three births. Um, Every one of them painful in their own way. Every one of them unique in their own way. And my wife is amazing, and she's incredible, and she didn't want any medication. She didn't want any relief. She wanted to feel it all and, and go through it all. And, and it felt so powerless to me to be standing next to her bed as she labored. Because there's nothing I can do, right? I can't even say helpful stuff. Like, I try to talk, and I'm not even necessarily helping, right? I'm just there. I'm a support, right? Fortunately for our daughter, the first one, we had a friend who was a doula who was there. And she was much more help than I was. Um, but as a man, I get to stand there and just be powerless and feel for my wife as she's dealing with this pain of childbirth knowing that that what's coming is is the most beautiful thing we'll experience as a couple and yet there's this pain that you have to go through to get to it and a pain that I can't step into I can't carry I would I would carry that for her if I could but I can't 
And then the consequences go one further. Not just pain in childbirth, but pain in relationship. We live in a world that is ruled by men. We live in a masculine world. And it has been this way for a very long time. And some people read this verse as a God's prescription for the world. That men would rule and women would be submissive. That men would dominate and women would have a quiet voice and be overruled by the men. And they would pine for power and they would never get it. This is not a prescription. This is a curse. This is not a prescription. This is a consequence of sin in the world. This is not the way it was meant to be. Men, women, we are meant to partner together as equal image bearers of God endowed with his power to bring his purposes to the world. One to one, we are to go this together on equal footing. We weren't meant to struggle for power. We weren't meant to fight with one another for power. We weren't meant to dominate one another. We were meant to hold hands together and walk this road together on equal footing. But because of the consequences of disobedience now, we have this power struggle And so within the church, folks, this ain't the way it's supposed to be. Within the church, women, you have as much a voice as any man here. Women, you have as much authority as any man here. If you are indwelled with the Spirit of God and have the power of God within you, you have as much authority as any man within the church. Own that and know it. And know that here at Christ Community, we will honor you and we will honor the Spirit of God in you to lead among men alongside of men, with men, that we understand that this power dynamic, this sexual power struggle that exists between the sexes is not God-ordained, but is a curse of the fall. And that here we are a place where the curse is overturned because we follow the great curse breaker, Jesus Christ. And so women, there's the consequences. Now we come to the men. And God looks at the man and he says, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. Here God looks to his glorious creation, the man, and he says, because you ate of that fruit, now the whole earth is cursed. Now the very ground is cursed. You're only going to get fruit. You're only going to get vegetables. You're only going to get what you need by the sweat of your brow. You're going to have to work for it. Where once the earth would have willingly given up its fruit to you, where once you would have had to work, yes, but you would not have had to beat yourself to death in order to make a little bit grow. Now you're going to have to battle weeds and thorns and all those things that choke out life. And this goes way beyond just cultivation. This goes way beyond horticulture. We have to work and toil by the sweat of our brow to make any fruit come about in our relationships, in our world, in our governments, in our organizations, in our churches. Think about the effort that it takes to get simple things done that are fruitful and how many barriers stand in the way anytime we want to do something God's called us to. It wasn't meant to be that way. It was never meant to be that way. It wasn't meant to be that way in our relationships. It wasn't meant to be that way in our organizations. It wasn't meant to be that way with the earth itself. We weren't meant to have to fight over All of these barriers just to make the simplest goods come about. 
And yet that's a consequence of our own disobedience. And we are reminded here in this curse that we are dust. Glorious as we are, made in the image of God as we are, we are yet dust. We are frail. Our bodies are frail. Our bodies will break down. They will die. Our bodies won't work properly. There are many of us in this room whose bodies don't work the way that they should. And we have to find other means to help our bodies do the very simple things that they ought to do. And it wasn't meant to be this way. And just like I said last week, we look at these consequences of sin and we look around at our world and and there's something within us that says it's not meant to be this way we weren't meant to fight we weren't meant to argue we weren't meant to struggle in this way we weren't meant to feel this pain we weren't meant for this we weren't created for this and if you look around at the brokenness of the world which everybody universally acknowledges Regardless of your faith tradition, regardless of your philosophical position, regardless of of how you view the world, everybody can agree our world is messed up and broken. If we look around at this and we only see the brokenness, we fall into despair. The natural position of humanity ought to be total nihilism. It means nothing. We all ought to say, along with Solomon in Ecclesiastes, that the world is meaningless. If we just see the brokenness of the world, that's the natural conclusion. So where's the hope? I mean, I hope you came here for some hope today. I hope you are here because you want hope. I hope you come to Jesus because you want hope. I hope you're part of this community because you want hope. And this is where we find it. And so we go back to the curse on the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent... Because you've done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You'll move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, this is not an origin story for why there are snakes. Okay, If you read this purely mythologically... You're just thinking, okay, well, that's, that's like the origin story of snakes. That's why people don't like snakes. This is not the origin story of snakes. From the earliest days of the church, from the earliest days of, of uh, our faith, it's been understood that this serpent is not merely a, a creature, not merely some created being who, who lived on the earth, not, not merely a, a flesh and blood thing but that this serpent is the embodiment of the enemy of the church, the enemy of God himself, the devil, the Satan, the adversary, the one who stands opposed to God's people. Some of us have a hard time believing in Satan. I talked to a guy yesterday. I was selling some tires, and the guy who came to pick him up found out I was a pastor. We had been talking for about 20 minutes, and his language was peppered with words that I don't usually use. And so when he found out I was a pastor, he did that thing that people do, and he was oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I've been... <sighs> you know, and I could just see. So I, I'm, I'm relieving him, you know. Brother, there's no judgment here. I don't expect anything of you. It's okay. Like, we're good. Let's keep going. And he asked me, you know, when you were in, when you were in school, did you ever take a demonology class? <laughs> I did not take a demonology class. Um, nope. Um, I'm not a priest, and I'm, I'm not an exorcist. Um, 
And he said to me, you know, I don't know what I believe in. I think there must be something greater, but it's a lot easier for me to believe that there are demons and forces of evil in the world than there is a God sometimes. Because I see their effects all the time. I see the power of evil in the world. It's easy for me to believe that there's a devil. It's not so much easy for me to believe there's a good God because I don't see him work in the same way. And I thought, brother, that's, I, I, I'm with you. I feel you. You know why he doesn't see that? You know why it's easier for him to see the effects of Satan and of evil in the world than good? Because we have a church that has been entirely insulated within itself. It wants to care for their own and come to our holy huddles and spend time with one another and not be the good hands and feet of God in the world. We're the good he should be seeing. We're the representatives of God he should be seeing. You got to be able to look at the world and say, yeah, I can definitely believe in demons. But you know what? Those people over there, I can definitely believe in their God too. Because I see how he's moved in them to be the good in the world. I see how they're fighting the effects of evil and the effects of pain in the world. I see how they're standing opposed to all the demons and the Satan and the evil that I see in the world around me. And sometimes we get caught in that same trap. Sometimes we get caught. We can believe there's a good God because we gather here and that's what our faith is, but, but we don't really believe in the effects of a, of a devil. Or vice versa, we can see the evil in the world and we can believe in a devil, but it's really hard to believe in a good God. And we end up in this place where we're of two minds. We're double-minded. It's hard to believe in one or the other. It's hard to believe that they're all there. And yet here we see the serpent cursed. The serpent who is the embodiment here of the enemy of God's people. We have an enemy in the world. But there's good news. There's good news that our enemy is already defeated. And it comes here in verse 15. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. From the very earliest days of the church, even before the church, there were some Jewish rabbis who looked at this text and they said, this is a prophecy. This is a prophecy of one who will come and finally bring total defeat to the serpent, total defeat to the devil, total defeat to those powers of evil that look so strong in the world. There is one coming whose heel will crush the head of the serpent forever. I have good news for you because there is one now who has come who hung on a cross to take the sin of you and me to crush the head of everything that stands opposed to us. From a cross. And in his death, he killed all of those effects of evil in the world once and for all. They are done. Jesus came as the serpent crusher, the curse breaker, the one who brings fulfillment, the one who brings what we call shalom, peace, wholeness, an end to evil. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what we look forward to in this season. We look back and we celebrate the day that Jesus hung upon that cross, taking our sin, mine, yours, collectively the sin of the world, and letting it crucify him, letting it kill him, and through his death, defeating its power over us. And simultaneously, as we look back, we look forward. 
Because that same Jesus who hung up on the cross, the same Jesus who rose again on the third day, defeating death, the same Jesus who has crushed our sin, crushed the authorities and powers of evil in the world, promised he would come again to make a final end of it all. Because you might rightly sit there and say, well, if Jesus took it on the cross, why am I dealing with this today? If Jesus took it all on the cross, if Jesus crushed the head of the serpent, then why today do I have to deal with cancer and diabetes and pain in my relationships and broken relationships with my kid? Why is my kid an addict? Why are my friends struggling financially? Why am I going hungry? If today you look and you say, if Jesus took it all, then why are we still struggling? Then I am here to give you hope. Because the same one who crushed our sin on the cross will return one day to crush the powers of evil again. And in the meantime, he promises us that we have life in him. That no matter what pain, no matter what struggle, no matter what difficulty we deal with in the here and now, we know that we have a secure life in Jesus Christ that cannot be taken away by any pain this world can throw at us. And that if the world crushes our bodies, if it kills this flesh, if it returns us to dust, our soul is securely in the hands of our Savior Jesus Christ, who will not let it go, but will hold us for all eternity. We follow the curse breaker, the serpent crusher, the sin defeater, and our souls are safely in his Hands until the day that he comes again and makes an end to all the evils of the world. This is what the Advent season is for. The Advent season is to recognize the darkness of the world around us. It's why we do it at this time of the year when it gets dark at 4.30 in the evening. It's to recognize the darkness and pain that sin has wrought in our world, but to look to the light of Jesus Christ, which will one day remake the world and banish the darkness forever. That's why we follow him. That's why we come to him. That's why we hold this hope. And so, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And to his disciples gathered there, he said, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. After supper, he took the cup. And he said, this is my blood, shed for you. Take and drink. Church, this is our act of hope. This is why we gather around the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that declares he has taken the pain and suffering of the world once for all in his body and that one day, one day he will rid us of all the darkness that surrounds us. But until then, our souls and our lives are secure in the hands of the one who suffered for us, in the hands of the life giver. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for this word. We thank you for this word to your people in Genesis 3. 
God, that you have promised us that you would crush the head of the serpent of all the things that oppose your people. That you did that very thing in the cross when you took all of our shame, when you took all of our guilt, when you took all of our sin, when you took all the brokenness of the world and you let it kill your body. And yet you rose to life to prove your domination of the darkness, your authority over the darkness. Jesus, you are the light. Help us to turn our eyes toward you. Holy Spirit, renew us. Renew us deeply so that we can be dedicated to you, Jesus, and being that light for a dark world. Thank you, Father, for calling us your own. Thank you for creating us and giving us a purpose in spreading your light, your love, your hope to a dark and dying world. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.